0: Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is Agroecosystems of Tomorrow. I'm your host, Matt Wallenstein. Each episode, we feature the stories and the science of the Department of Soil and Crop Sciences. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Mike Wilkins assistant professor here at colorado state university welcome mike
1: hey thanks matt it's good to be here
0: yeah it's a pleasure to have you here i've been wanting to get you on the show for a while now glad to have you so uh mike you you consider yourself a microbiome scientist is that right
1: yeah i've had sort of quite diverse training um i my phd is in microbiology um but i've worked in earth science departments um for much of my career actually but uh, yeah my training's in microbiology and uh so yeah there's a lot of interest obviously in microbiome science now so that's sort of the area that uh probably fits me best
0: yeah so well first of all for what do you, what is a microbiome why like why and why did you get excited about this
1: concept? yeah well it's it's one of these topics that's really sort of taken off in the last uh, last couple of years obviously uh microbiomes have been around for hundreds of millions of years um but this growing appreciation that uh communities of microorganisms, so bacteria, archaea, fungi, uh, viruses, um, they play critical roles in almost everything that we think about and that we, we interact with over the course of a day um, in our lives. I mean, they're on our skin, um, they're on every surface you look at, they're in the soil, they're in the atmosphere, uh, they're in our guts, critically, um, and so it's just this incredibly exciting area of research. We really don't know very much um, about the microbiome um, in any systems to be honest uh, but many systems are, um, are less explored than others and so there's a lot of sort of real estate uh, for investigating these uh, these topics. Um, so yeah it's a it's a really fascinating area of research and I'm sure as we'll get into today there's a, uh, uh, there are some areas where the hype is justified and there's some areas where the hype possibly uh, isn't justified and the microbiome is getting overhyped and I'm sure Probably most of the listeners will have seen at least one or two instances in the news where microbiomes have been offered as a a solution for the world's problems. Oh wait, they're not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I thought they thought they saw (laughs) everything by giving it away already. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So so before we before we go there, you said you have a background in microbiology. How what's different between microbiology and microbiome sciences.
1: Yeah, so microbiology is really sort of a large, sort of catch-all term. Um, You can study a a single gene maybe or a single protein for for your career and still be a microbiologist. Uh, The microbiome science really comes in where we're looking at communities of microorganisms and especially how those uh, communities uh, interact with each other. And how they interact with their external environment as well and change that environment. And so it's this real sort of focus on the community that that, that sort of addresses the microbiome uh, side of things. So I
0: think a lot of people have heard in recent years about the microbiome that lives in or on our bodies and are sort of developing an understanding of why we might want to think about how the microbiome influences our health um, people buy products like probiotics that, that they hope might, mm-hmm. uh, might help that. Um, you know, and there, there's all sorts of solutions that, that, uh, at least, you know, purport to, uh, address diseases of the microbiome. Um, maybe we could save that for, for later another time, <laughs> um, getting into some of that. But, um, I don't know that everyone's as familiar with the role of microbiomes in, in the environment and, um, and in particular, some of the environments that we can't see, like soils or the subsurface.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, do you want me to
1: speak about that? Or yeah, so, sort of, yeah, so,
0: you know, like, tell us a little bit about, I know you've done some work in in the subsurface, yeah. the, you know, in rocks. Um, it might be surprising for a lot of people to learn that there's actually any kind of life down there.
1: Sure, yeah. So, um, obviously, so sort of the ground beneath our feet is difficult to... Uh, to sort of to to look into simply because it's you know the soil the sediments uh, there's there's bedrock Um, now soils are interesting soils are incredibly diverse they host a huge amount of biomass Um, and of course the microbiomes are important in those systems for for crop yields soil fertility uh, driving elemental cycles Um, a lot of my work prior to coming to CSU has been involved with um, deeper locations, so as we go sort of meters to hundreds of meters to thousands of meters in, in the subsurface, so we're really getting away from areas where um, uh, sort of sort of carbon, so sort of photosynthetically derived carbon, is a uh, is being input. So here we're we're isolated from sunlight, and yet microbes are still able to, to persist in these systems. Um, in the context of sort of slightly shallower sort of sediments, we've done a lot of work looking at how microbes. Um, can be used in bioremediation. So we did, we did work looking at how microbes can interact with uranium, and potentially solve problems associated with uh, uranium uh, contamination in the environment. So we, think of, we think of uranium as a, a deadly toxin. Yeah. Uh, how, do, how do microbes actually, don't they get killed by that? Yeah, well, this is sort of a cool thing actually. In the same way that we breathe oxygen to, to live, um, certain microbes can actually breathe uranium. Um, they gain energy from this reaction, and uh, actually, as they breathe the uranium, they, they help to immobilize it, they precipitate it, so it doesn't move through the subsurface anymore. So that's sort of an interesting uh, reaction that certain subsurface microbiomes can catalyze. Um, actually, the, the sort of the, the, what we call the deep biosphere is potentially the most interesting. So these are microbes, microbial populations, microbiomes, uh, that exist thousands of meters below the surface, uh, buried deep under sediments or, or within bedrock. And, um, these microbes sort of not, unexpectedly grow really slowly. There's, there's not very much energy in these systems or nutrients. And so uh, they're growing very slowly. Some, often they're just um, sort of doing just enough, producing just enough energy to stay alive and not actually dividing. And so um, one of the sort of the cool uh, sort of takeaways you can, you can get from this is that some of these microorganisms that have just been sort of trying to stay alive and replacing DNA and things they could actually be sort of thousands, tens of thousands of years old. And so people have done calculations, especially in the deep marine seafloor, and they think that some of these microbes could be some of the oldest living things on Earth. just kind of of blows your mind when you think about it. And to be clear, you mean actually a living, a single organism, a a, a,
0: a single bacterium? Might, might have been alive for 10,000, not just the species,
1: but, a, but an actual individual. Exactly. That cell yeah. hasn't divided. It's just generated enough energy to fix its DNA or fix its cell wall. Um, and so, yeah, that cell has been hanging around um, under you know, thousands of meters of sediment and, and, and seawater, um, just hanging out there, waiting for conditions to change, which obviously they probably won't do anytime soon. Yeah, so these are kind of living fossils. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's, it's, it's pretty cool when you think about Think about sampling those things.
0: Yeah. So one of the reasons that we don't know as much about microbiomes and microbes as we do uh, with animals and plants is that they're hard to observe, right? Um, We've long known some of the things that we're learning about microbes. We've known about animals and plants and other organisms for for hundreds of years, literally. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you're using some new tools to help uncover the ecology
1: of these microbes? Sure, yeah, and that's a good point actually. I mean, I, sort of, I made the point earlier on that microbiomes have been around for you know, hundreds of millions of years, um, but of course for the longest time we were sort of limited in how we could actually investigate these organisms. Obviously they're, they're thousands of a millimeter long each cell and very difficult to actually do anything with. I mean hundreds of years ago we could maybe uh, look at microbiomes through primitive microscopes and things, but um, recently the our ability to, to look at these, uh, these, these communities has been uh, really enhanced by this sort of this revolution in DNA sequencing. Um, and so, you uh, may be aware of this, but DNA sequencing is becoming uh, extremely cheap these days. And so we're able to sequence DNA uh, from these microbial communities and then apply a whole range of sort of computational tools to, to see who's there, so which microbes are actually present in these microbiomes, and then actually see uh, what these microbiomes are potentially doing in the environment, whether it be the human gut or some, some agricultural soils. Um, so this sort of, using these DNA-based techniques along with uh, sort of cutting-edge techniques with proteins um, and uh, other sort of small molecule identification can really help us get this sort of overarching view of how microbiomes function and, uh, and interact with their environments as well. So it's some really powerful techniques, I think. Cost has come down, um, and uh, they've just become more available. So you'll, you'll find a lot of people doing these microbiome analyses these days. So, you know,
0: I think, I think it's amazing how quickly technology has advanced and allowed, allowed us to, uh, to uncover the mysteries of, of the microbiome. What is, but it also at the same time can seem intimidating in that, you know, these are, these are fancy tools. These are um, complex computational programs in order to, to make sense of this data. It, are there opportunities even for, you know, a freshman, for undergrads to get involved in this kind of research?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the, some of the processes that have sort of increased the advancement of this science is the fact that it is, although it does seem sort of very uh, intimidating on the surface, it is a lot more accessible than it it used to be. I mean, uh, certainly in the past, we've had uh, undergraduate researchers uh, doing DNA extractions and then uh, being involved with data processing and interpreting the data as well. So there's, there are definitely lots of, uh, I don't know, I don't want to make it seem too simple, and you know belittle my uh, <laughs> belittle my research group. But uh, there are uh, it, it is certainly more accessible than it used to be five, ten years ago now. And so yeah, there's a there's a lot of opportunities to get involved and get a real sort of footing in this field.
0: Yeah, and and you've had undergrads work in your lab, or you probably have some now, and get, uh, yeah, absolutely, they get to dive right in and, and use yeah, it's, uh,
1: it's it's pretty it's pretty cool. You can take some some sediment or some soil and. Uh, and yeah, you, you can extract DNA straight from that stuff and then we can send it off to a sequencing center and, uh, and see what we get back. So that's a that's a very common thing that, uh, that undergrads get to do in the lab. Yeah, and we, which is really
0: amazing. A student can come and, um, you know, within even in their first year um, with some training, be doing really cutting edge science and learning things, discovering whole new whole new organisms, whole new ways of making a living. Um, You know, it's exciting to be at the frontier of a a science like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. uh, uh, One of the last students who's my lab recently, who's actually now gone on to 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 do a PhD. She isolated a microorganism. We sequenced its genome. She characterized its metabolism and uh, did a whole series of of experiments. So, really combining sort of wet lab stuff with um, with these sort of molecular approaches as well. So, it was a a really nice project.
0: Yeah. So, you came to CSU. this fall and uh in some ways you're you're still getting settled here um what how have you found the the culture and the atmosphere here at colorado state um you know what 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 parts of
1: it um yeah. are, are unique yeah i um i this this might seem like a sort of a, a corny cheesy answer but uh it really is a warm sort of welcoming environment here obviously we're sort of new to the department but i've been made to feel uh like I've been here for, for many years already. So that's it's amazing what difference that makes when you come into a department and you, you're made to feel like you belong there and, and you're welcome there. So that's been fantastic. And I think the other thing that's been really great is here has been just the, uh, the number of people to collaborate and, and talk science with. There's a lot of people who, uh, whilst they may not uh, do microbiome science as a sort of primary focus area, they think about it and think how maybe it interacts with their area of focus as well. And so I've had some great conversations with colleagues uh, both in, in this department and, and elsewhere on campus. So that's been really nice as well. Um, just feeling like the work that I do is, uh, is valued here. Um, and also, um, people are interested in it as well. Um, like I say, it gives uh, great opportunities for bringing undergrads into the lab and uh, attracting graduate students as well. It, it almost sounds like you're having fun. <laughs> yeah, I hate, to, I hate to make it sound too much like fun, but yeah, that, yeah, that could be it actually. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well I mean I think um we, we shouldn't be embarrassed to say that that no. we actually really enjoy our work. Yeah, no, it always, always
1: helps when Monday morning rolls around and it's uh, it's easy to climb out of bed. So that's a good situation to be in. Yeah,
0: and you know, I think um just thinking about people who might be thinking about um science as a career. Mm-hmm. What do you what what brought you to science? What, you know, why why did you choose this as a career? Yeah,
1: I um so I, it's funny, actually, in a, I did my, my undergraduate degree in England, and you were forced to make some choices uh, quite early on in your life in the UK education system, and so I, you know, in high school I enjoyed microbiology classes or biology classes, and so I, I, I picked to do microbiology um, as an undergraduate topic, which seems like quite a specific thing to choose when you're sort of 16 or 17 years old, but luckily I made a good decision there. I really enjoyed it, and I had a, a great lecturer called uh, Lynn McCaskey, who uh, who was my environmental uh, microbiology lecturer? And she uh, she really inspired me to sort of to continue in this vein. Um, I, I found a great PhD mentor as well um, back in uh, the University of Manchester back in the UK, and so I've always had really supportive mentors um, all the way throughout my career, which is, which is really important as well.
0: Can, can you think back that decision? Was there some was there someone or something that that made you you know realize an interest in microbiology? Uh,
1: yeah, well. <laughs> Microbiology itself, I think I just remember being really impressed that these things were everywhere, but then I certainly remember environmental microbiology. We, uh, we had a lecture where it was sort of, we started to go into the details of how these things just drive global biogeochemical cycles, so they drive the cycling of carbon, of, of nitrogen, of sulfur, and everything else, and uh, I just remember thinking that was incredible, that these basically microorganisms that you, you can't see with you, the naked eye were having such an impact on the earth, basically, and uh, I remember thinking that there's probably a lot of <laughs> a lot of topics to investigate in there, mm-hmm. and uh, and so that led you know, one thing led to another at that stage. It, uh,
0: it's always interesting to think back on um, how how some really minor events or just an interaction with one person
1: can kind of change the course of your life and, and yeah. get you interested in a subject, and then it just kind of goes from there. Absolutely, yeah. Like I said, like I was very lucky that I had a, sort of an inspiring uh, lecturer. Um, at the undergrad level who really sort of pushed me in this direction and helped me find a PhD mentor and of course they were supportive as well and so my career progressed from that. So in your experience,
0: what what do you think are the characteristics that makes someone successful in, 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 as an undergraduate researcher, as a
1: graduate student
0: and then in, you know, in a career as a scientist?
1: yeah i i I think you have to be interested you can't you can't fake it <laughs> yeah. you might be able to fake it for a short period of time but uh science is really fun, but it can occasionally be quite hard as well and so you have to really have that have that sort of passion and that that interest um but that will go that' will get you a long way as well um I've seen uh, people who perhaps don't have the the very greatest sort of you know formalized testing grades, but they have such an interest in science and, um and that all that really does uh, Go a long way in this sort of area, um, so I think that's—I mean, yeah—that's certainly a, a, a pretty important factor there. Um, and like I say, I think another thing to focus on is really talking to as many people as possible. Even as an undergraduate, try and develop a network of people who you can talk to, whether it's grad students or faculty mentors or whatever. Because it's amazing what opportunities come around through professional networks wait a second wait a second did you just say talk to people <laughs> we're scientists we're supposed to be introvert <laughs> the the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no but
0: it's really true right that like science uh, is is all about um making connections with people learning from other people and and uh and it's important to get out there and 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 expose yourself to, um, to lots of different ideas, and that can be a real part of your success.
1: It, it is, because I think sort of the stereotype is of a scientist sort of hidden away in the lab or in a, a dark room sort of working away, whereas in reality it's fair, well, maybe this applies more for certain fields than others, but certainly I can speak to my field. Uh, a lot of the work we do is sort of highly interdisciplinary, so we, we interact and collaborate with a wide range of, 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 of PIs students, even the undergrads that work with them. So uh, we just, we work with a lot of different people and talk with a lot of different people on a daily basis. And that's, that's really important. And uh, and so you, you actually get out of the building once in a while? <laughs> Occasionally feel the warmth of the sun rays on my skin. Yeah. Wow, that's Yeah. That amazing. yeah. Uh,
0: All kidding aside, are, are you enjoying uh, Colorado, taking advantage of, of some of the outdoor activities that Colorado has awesome. I
1: am. So this is sort of a, a strange situation. So I I'm, I moved from um, actually, during my PhD, I, I, I came out to a small town called Natarita um, in southwest Colorado and did some field work there. When I was doing my postdoctoral research at Berkeley, I, my main project was in western Colorado near a small town called Rifle. And I, I continued working at Rifle when I was uh, I worked as a SAF scientist uh, for the Department of Energy. Uh, and then in the prior position, I also worked in Colorado. So I've been working in Colorado for about sort of, 15 to 20 years or so. Um, and, of course, I used to massively enjoy it, and then I used to have to go home. <laughs> so it's really nice now being able to actually be here in Colorado, obviously enjoy the fantastic weather and, and everything else the state has to offer. Um, but then also have all these these research sites in my in the background now. So it, it ticks a lot of boxes. So,
0: you know, for people who worry about um, the life balance um, and Sometimes people, people think, you know, in order to be successful in a science career that you have to, uh, you know, work all the time and, and uh, you know, and it's impossible to maintain that balance. What, what's your thought? Do I mean, you think uh, you can you can have your cake made it too? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I mean, this whole sort of you-must-work-80-hours-a-week mindset is really dangerous, I think. Um, there's absolutely no need for it. It's, it's clearly unhealthy in my eyes and probably results in you being far less productive than if you had a healthy work-life balance. Uh, so yeah, I occasionally see these, these sort of comments online on places like Twitter and things. And luckily I think there, there seems to be a growing awareness that that just isn't necessary at all. And in fact, it's it's how you work rather than how long you work that's most important. You can be you can be very efficient working you know, 35, 40 hours a week and get a lot done. Um, in fact, often more so than these people that put in very long hours because. We have to question how effective people can be after you know two or three hours sleep every night. So. Yeah, sleep's important. <laughs> Exercise. I've had yeah.
0: I've had my best ideas on my bike. That's that's for sure. Yeah, oh, absolutely. This. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's uh it's actually an important part of of being successful. I think it's taking the time to let yourself think and uh, relax. So um, when you think back on your career, is there any any particular project or or you know scientific insight that you're
1: most proud of or that was maybe most surprising to you um i guess it's easiest to say project um i can it's funny i can actually pinpoint one project that's really sort of made my career i guess um, and so this is uh, this was actually the work we started doing out in colorado near, near rifle and this was a Uh, a project that I started during my postdoctoral research and then I was able to carry that through. Uh, I made enough connections and we got enough sort of value from that project that I carried that through to to two subsequent jobs uh, and continued to work out in in Colorado. So that was a that was a project where we were um, looking at again uranium. We've we've touched on uranium already. We were looking at uranium behavior in soils Um, and we made that was obviously the primary focus initially but then we made some additional insights. We were just looking in uh in these, these sediments next to the colorado river um, and this gets to um, a couple of points we've touched on already about how you know microbiomes are everywhere but we just certainly don't know much about them and um, we discovered this huge portion of the microbial tree of life that had never ever uh, been seen before but we found it in these sediments and subsequently found out that these microbes were, were distributed quite broadly across the across the globe um, but that was really that was really amazing we we did some, some, some DNA sequencing and identified these microbes. And it's kind of cool to think that you've identified you know, a huge swathe of the, of the bacterial, the microbial tree of life that no one ever knew existed before. And now we'd identified it and we were starting to work out what these microbes actually did. Um, so, so, for, was, for context,
0: uh, for people who aren't really familiar with, with the tree of life, yeah.
1: If, if we were to put this in
0: terms of, of other organisms that people are more familiar with, what would, it, what would be an equivalent of, of discovering? Well, it
1: sounds sort of ridiculous, but it, if, you, if you can imagine um, that we sort of discovered um, sort of the, the genetic diversity that's encoded within the mammals. So imagine mm-hmm. if you didn't know that mammals existed and all of a sudden you found them. That was wow. a sort of uh, obviously we're dealing with we're dealing with sort of microorganisms here, so it's not visually quite as exciting as uh, as discovering you know uh, uh, yeah, but, that part of the, the tree of life. But um, that was sort of the genetic diversity that we we identified in these in these sediments, and uh, yeah, so that that sort of work went from uh, from strength to strength because obviously that was a pretty pretty important finding at that time. Yeah, and do you remember was
0: there like a single moment where you realized what you had discovered, or did it kind of
1: Trickle out over time. It's, unfortunately, it sort of trickled out because we, we weren't quite sure what we were looking at. We, sort of my initial default sometimes is, oh, I've done something wrong, and yep. trying to work out where I'd made a mistake because this stuff didn't make any sense. And then uh, slowly we we sort of went over the, the various analyses with, with collaborators and you know, worked out exactly what we were looking at there. And um, and so yeah, it wasn't sort of a eureka moment. Unfortunately, it was just sort of a growing awareness that this was pretty cool and pretty important, but mm-hmm. it was satisfying a lot
0: yeah yeah I mean that that's really incredible. I don't think uh there's very many other people alive that can claim to have uh discovered a whole new you know component of of the life on earth so it's it's uh it's really something to be proud of and and something that uh you know must have been really exciting
1: yeah and I think actually it's it's worth again going back to another point we made you know with this sort of advent of DNA sequencing um one of the most exciting things is, you know, we're getting access to new locations on Earth. I mean, we're able to drill deeper into the Earth's crust. We're able to sample deeper in the world's oceans. We're able to apply some of these tools to, to sort of agricultural soils, and, and uh, it's amazing the extent of diversity on Earth that hasn't been identified yet. And so, um, although that was sort of my uh sort of a proud moment for me uh it is something that is sort of it does happen to, to other researchers for, cert, for sure in these other systems we're seeing a lot more uh, uh diversity of life on earth than we, uh, than we certainly realized.
0: do you think that we're still in this period of of uh intense discovery in terms of micro microbiomes and microbes or are we entering a new period where we can actually start to apply that knowledge
1: um, I think there are certainly people that are trying to apply that knowledge. Uh, there have been some researchers that have tried to estimate, you know, knowing what we what we know currently, how much more is there out there? And um, their estimates say that there is still a lot more out there. Um, it's funny that just to give a, another example, if you think about um, sort of reservoirs of life on Earth, you might think that maybe soils have the most life on Earth or the oceans have the most life on Earth. Instead, it's actually the terrestrial subsurface it has such a huge volume. Um, it hosts the largest amount of, of biomass on Earth. And yet, if you think about how we've sampled that environment, aside from a few sort of uh, sort of boreholes drilled here and there, we've really only sampled a tiny, tiny fraction of the, of the terrestrial subsurface and the marine subsurface for that matter. And so um, these are the sort of environments where you can imagine sort of, in the future as we sample more and more of these ecosystems, we're going to see a lot more exciting, interesting microorganisms that we can... Uh, leverage for potentially beneficial outcomes who knows
0: yeah yeah i think it's it's such an exciting time for the field and uh you know the intense discovery continues and we're learning ways to manipulate and manage microbiomes and um you know learning learning ways that we can apply that knowledge to make more efficient agricultural systems more uh, improved
1: bioremediation and and human health as well yeah absolutely i mean it's uh uh, it's, it's exciting in that regards, and of course, it often uh, makes economic sense as well. I mean, the whole, uh, one of the whole benefits of, of bioremediation to take one of your examples is that you can, uh, if you're trying to clean up a, a spill or a, or a mess somewhere, you can spend huge amounts of money on these sort of highly engineered approaches, you know, pumping and treating uh, groundwater or excavating soil. If you, can, you can leverage some of the microorganisms that are there naturally to perform a process that helps clean up the site. That's obviously fantastic, it's far less intrusive, and uh, importantly for the people that own these locations, it's a lot cheaper as well, and so uh, there are lots of potential benefits for really using microbes for our benefit if possible. For sure. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure having you, it's been uh,
0: really fun learning about your uh, all the discoveries you've made, and, and how you approach your science, and uh you know and how you have fun doing it
1: yeah so. hey well thanks for having me matt some, uh, some good questions there
0: yeah i appreciate it look forward to having you back sometime soon yeah, sounds good